Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things. Graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness. And bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, August the 28th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. The The collect, what that actually means, is, it's just a prayer, obviously, um, but, but what it means is it's collecting up all the sort of all the points of the lessons we're looking at for the day and, and the prayers of the people themselves. So it's collecting those prayers and raising them up before the Lord. So here, it's, you know, we've, we've uh, had a good week. It's, it's been kind of nice. It's been lower 80s pretty much every day, 60s at night. Um, had an encounter with a bear the other night on the back porch, went out. We were, we were having the back of the house painted, and I take my raccoon food out at 8.30. About 9.30, I go out and check, see how everybody's doing. Usually, our cafe lights are on the porch, and so there's no reason to, to worry about it. And But that night, it happened that, that I flipped the lights on. I didn't flip the lights on, sorry. opened the door, and it sounded like about 40,000 raccoons trying to leave my porch all at one time. And what it was was instead a bear. And so um, he went on, and, and I went and got some apples. And th- I'll throw these out there for the, for the raccoons. And I did that, and when I did, I looked to the right down the steps, and there, the bear was there. And... Uh, I said something like, hey, big boy, don't eat all my food out here. And he went, huh, huh. I decided it was time to go back inside. So he hung out on the back porch and ate for about 15 minutes or so. So anyway, and then we kind of had to scare him off but because um, he kept looking in the windows of the French door. It was a little unnerving. So anyway, it was fine. Um, so anyway, we had a really, Suzanne and I had a really great um, hike one day this week. It was, it was really, really nice. We hiked out in the Pisgah Forest. Um, pretty good climb um, from Cat Gap up to John Rock, which has a great view from John Rock, and then uh, back down and around and ran into some uh, kids, juniors in high school from Greensboro Day School, who are, they take a trip every year to begin the school year at the, for the juniors, and so they were out, and so they're the only people we saw all day, though, so it was um, really nice. But anyway, so it's just been kind of, you know, moving along, trying to figure out what the Lord wants, what He wants us to do, so... Um, I know he wants me to do these things, so I keep doing them. Changing up the Sunday, the daily one, by the way, a little bit. Uh, starting in Advent this year, I'm going to do a series on um, what are called the 13 Attributes of Divine, divine Mercy. And those are found in um, Exodus 34, 6 to 8, after the sin of the golden calf, and Moses asked to see God's glory. So God tells him, no, you can't see my face, you can only see my back, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, put my hand over your face, and then he pronounces on his name as he goes by. And, he, and he's things like gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. Um, and so we're going to look at uh, those um, attributes. But we're going to have to spend a little bit of time first looking at why God has to say these things and how that fits with what the revelation has been so far, and then how those things are played out in the life of Jesus. And then we're going to look a little bit at Mary right before Christmas, and then going to start a series after Christmas on um after the Christmas Day, actually, after Christmas Day, I'm going to start a series on um, the book of Matthew. So I'm going to break up the the pattern that I've been doing now. Um, we've been talking about it a lot, and so Suzanne says, you know, there's a lot in Matthew that needs to be unpacked. So I'm going to do that, and then at the same time, I'm going to be working on a blog on another site 
um, that on the book of Genesis, because that'll be what I'll do after I get done with Matthew, because I just love the book of Genesis, and, and we could camp out in there and probably stay in, until the day I die, even if I live a long time. So anyway, that that's where we are and what we're doing. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at basically rules for living, um, both the gospel and the epistle, um, are mostly about rules for living. How do we live? Um, and and it, it seems a little bit odd, Jesus' um, uh, response in this, the, the in the gospel lesson. You'll see that. In it. But in Jeremiah, where we are beginning, where Jeremiah 2, verses 4 to 13, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clowns, clans, <laughs> all the clowns, all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. He's he's not really pulling punches here, is he? I mean, he's just, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far away from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They didn't say, where's the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. They didn't say that. He, says, he said, if they had said that, they would have recalled all the things that I'd did for them. And if they did that, they wouldn't have gone astray. So if they just ask the right questions, if you ask the question in the right way, then then you don't make these mistakes. And the, and the wording of the question is important. Where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? When you, once you ask the question the right way, then then you don't make the mistake. He said, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. So I didn't just lead you in the wilderness. I brought you into a plentiful land. I brought you into exactly the place that I told you I was bringing you, exactly the place that I had promised to your forefathers that I would give to you. But when you came in, you defiled my land and my heritage an abomination. The priest didn't say, where's the Lord? Those who handle the law didn't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. He says, so your leaders, this is where this problem begins. The problem begins with the priest didn't say, where's the Lord? No, they don't even ask that question. They don't even know me. And they prophesy, the prophets do, they prophesy by Baal, by something that's not even a God at all. But it has a particular name, and then you see this again and again through the prophets. You see it in uh, Hosea, for instance, when he says, you'll no longer call me by, you'll, by, by the name Baal. So it's a case of mistaken identity at some level. They're, they're ascribing to Baal the things that properly should be ascribed to Yahweh. But here he says, they don't even know me. They only know this stuff about Baals, and why? What is it they know? What is it that Baal is? Baal is a god of fertility and fecundity. In other words, it makes the crops grow, more wealth, more for us. And so it's exposing what's in their hearts, what's in their, what their real desire is. Is there a desire to establish the kingdom of God and to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation serving that God, or is it more and more and more of earthly stuff? And, and that's exactly what he is accusing them of here. Because when you start going after Baal, then, then what you're doing is it's a prosperity gospel. That's the promise of, of Baal. 
is prosperity because because you'll get more and more and more because the land will be more fertile. It'll get more rain. It'll get all the right stuff that it needs to produce super abundantly. And God said, I took you into that land. It's exactly the land that I gave you. And you're ascribing this to the Baals. And there's a reason that there's a difference between Baal worship and Yahweh worship. There's no Sabbath in Baal worship. There's no Sabbath day. There's no Sabbath year. There's no Jubilee year. There's not a time when the land lies fertile because the land's productive capacity is all that matters. And at that time, there wouldn't have been any idea that the land's productive capacity is actually weakened by continually planting the same crops over and over and over. Nobody knew that, really, until the 19th century for certain. Scientifically, nobody knew it. People knew it, surely, by just process of elimination. Just wait, what happened here? But, but God has to take his people out in the time of Jeremiah to give the land its rest. But they won't give it its rest, and that's the reason they chase after the Baals, because they want more and more and more. It's a prosperity gospel, period, end of sentence. He says, therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Gadar and examine with care. See if there's ever been such a thing. He says, check out everywhere that you look. Go somewhere and find out this one thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? He said, this is unique to Israel. Israel gave up its gods in order to pursue the gods of the nations. He said, there's nothing like this in the world. And we're a people who have a relationship. We have a covenant relationship that is defined by a charter and a constitution. There's a declaration of independence involved. The declaration of independence is the taking them out of Egypt. And then there's a constitution, and that's what happens at Mount Sinai when the law is given. That's the constitution of the people. These are the laws of this people. These are the things these people seek. These are the things their God promises. And, and yet you have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Just exactly what Paul says in Romans 1. And it is. It's, it's, it's what is happening in this country. We, we've gotten so enamored of prosperity that we're working ourselves to death. And we're, we're trying to find um, places of importance in the world, and we don't know how to be quiet. We don't know how to be still. We don't know how to be before the Lord. We, we want more and more and more because we've got to keep up with those people over there and those people over there and those people over there, and there's, there's no end to it. And then everything else is, becomes about, okay, I've got the money now. I can find pleasure. Does, does the church not ever actually read the book of Ecclesiastes anymore? Do we ever not look at it and say, you know what, that's not exactly what we're supposed to be chasing? And, and, and Solomon's got a good handle on that because he's a guy who did chase it. Not only did he chase it, he had it. He possessed all the things that we want today. And, and yet he says it, it wasn't enough. There was nothing in that. At the end of the day, I found these things to be vanity and nothing more than that. It's a chasing after the wind. But that's the point of exchanging your God because you want something that other God promised, which is prosperity, as opposed to having to live under the law of God, which says that every seven years you take that year off and you leave it fallow every seven days. One out of every seven days, you let everything go. You don't do commerce on that day. And, and then on the seventh year, basically, you set it aside to worship the Lord and to, to bask in his goodness of continuing to provide, even though you haven't actually done anything 
to produce anything. And then every 50 years, the land reverts to everybody else. So it could be two consecutive years, one a Sabbath and the next the Jubilee year when you don't do anything. And, and when we just lost sight of trusting in God because we want more and more and more. And that, that's hard for me to say because I, I, I've been that guy. And, and I'm not saying that I've been cured of that. But I'm saying God put some obstacles in my way that slowed me down and kept me from that path. And I don't think it's because he wanted me to be a priest. I think it's because he wanted me to love him. <laughs> I think it's because he wanted me to see that he is ultimately the provider and not John. And, that, and then he wanted me to see what's enough and what's important. And so here he, he says, my people have changed their glory for that which doesn't profit. In spite of the fact that's what they're seeking is profit. And what he's saying is an Ecclesiastes kind of a thing, that, that change, chasing after that profit doesn't profit because it's illusory and it's temporal. It doesn't last into eternity. And, and so it goes back to the same message again and again and again. We can just preach the same message every week. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. That's the promise on it. But are we seeking his righteousness? Are we seeking something else? And, and as I've said a million times, we can tell by the way we spend our time. It's an easy way to figure out what your chief values are, is to see where you spend your time, where you invest your life. And that hurts to realize that. It hurts me to realize that. I don't spend enough time seeking after the kingdom of God. I'm not accusing you without saying it about myself. Because God's got to preach that to me first, because otherwise I'm just a scold. So he, this is the summation that... that um, Jeremiah gives. He said, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He said, look, I'm the fountain of living water. Living water is running water. It's gushing forth a perpetual supply. And he said, what they've done is they've given that up, the fountains of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves. You know what a cistern is? Cistern's a hole in the ground that would be lined typically with something where you collect rainwater. Well, he says, I, I'm an ever-flowing stream. And what you've got instead is something that, that's a broken cistern. It doesn't even hold the water that falls into it. And, and that's exactly what Solomon tried to say after having had everything and writing ultimately about, you know what, none of it fulfilled the need in me. It's this the God-shaped hole that St. Augustine talked about that, that can only be filled by him. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And it's absolutely true. Are we finding our rest in him? You know, And, and that's one of the things that, that we've, we've had to learn over a long period of time. God had to teach us these things, and sometimes it meant that he had to kick our legs out from under us, trip us up and keep us from running in the direction that we were going because we would have gone in a wrong direction, and ultimately we would have been incredibly lost as opposed to stopping that before we got to, to the place where we were incredibly lost. He, he slowed us down and said, stand and look, and then rest. Rest in me, and, and that's what we try to do is rest in God's goodness and God's greatness. We know he's able to do anything, but we also know that he only does those things that are best for us. And if, if you can come to that place and believe that, then, man, a lot of anxiety goes away. And, and you can see things 
more clearly. Doesn't mean that I always do. No, not at all. I'm just saying, though, that, that if we took inventory of our lives, slowed down and looked and said, what are we living for? We might be surprised and we might make changes in our lives. And, and Jesus speaks into that in some ways in this gospel lesson today because it begins with one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. Now we skip from verse 1 to verse 7, so I'll just quickly tell you what you are not going to be surprised to hear. And that is, is that in verses 2 through 6, what happens is Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath, and that causes um, consternation. And now he goes on to give advice to two different classes of people in this next little bit. And it seems like, well, why would Matthew have recorded this? And you can kind of hear it, uh, that why is he recording all this? Why is this important until you get to the very end of each of these sections? So he says, he told a parable to those who were invited. So he's given advice to guests here when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So when they came into the house and they came to this, this dinner they, they scoped out the best seats, the places where they would receive the most honor, and they took those places. And so he looks at him and he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. So what will what, happen is it'll be obvious to everyone that, that you stepped out of your league and, and that you tried to put yourself in a place of honor that you didn't actually have the honor to, to sit in. So he says, no, no, no. He, he says, do this instead. He says, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you, as opposed to being embarrassed because you've got to slink away from the place of honor and sit in a place of of much less honor at the feast. Okay. Great. Good advice. Perfect. Then he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And and that, that sounds like it's sort of the lesson from the parable. And it sounds like, at some level, that, it, that it's just a lesson from the parable about social situations. But it's clearly not. Jesus clearly has a principle at hand here that is much, much higher than just how to act when you go to somebody's house for a get, for, as a guest. No, he, he's giving us a truth, and it's a truth that he teaches again and again, and he teaches it, in fact, every single day of his earthly life, because the, the great condescension for Jesus to become a man in order to exalt God and to exalt mankind to the right hand of God the Father. It, so it's a condescension in God stepping down from his Godhead and from his rightful status and becoming like us, part of creation in order to exalt us and save us and give us eternal life. The the great condescension is complete at the cross when he allows his own creation to crucify him. He's a willing sacrifice there. And then, then begins the exaltation process. It begins the glorification process, which begins there at the cross, believe it or not, as part of the glorification process. Because the taking on of flesh is one thing, but the taking on of sin 
at the cross is a completely different thing. And it's there that he becomes our king because he sets us free from sin in the same way that, that God set them free from Egypt. We're not now set free from the bondage of slavery to sin and set free to serve him and to love him without fear. And so that exaltation process begins with the greatest act of humility that's ever been. So postmodernism can say that religion is a claim to power. Well, there's nothing more powerless than God dying on a cross and then being raised from the dead, then ascending to the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so we see that as exaltation of Jesus. And then once he's finished with the advice to guests, now he gives advice to the host. He also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. You'll get what you, you if you ask them, then, then they will invite you back. And so, so you'll get repaid for your hospitality by them being hospitable to you. But this still is the strangest beginning that anybody in that situation could ever hear. Because, no, you're trying to climb a social ladder. And the way you climb the social ladder and the way you preserve peace and harmony is by inviting your friends, your brothers, and your relatives, right? So you keep peace in the family by inviting those people that you know best, you keep, you, you keep everything on a peaceable level. That way you don't have people looking and going, you know, he gave a banquet the other day and he didn't invite me. And, and so now there's gossip beginning and there's people beginning to talk. And, and why would they want to be invited to that? Well, because you're inviting good people, right? And so then he goes to rich neighbors. So you've got friends, relatives, rich neighbors. Well, it's a, it's a social climbing thing, that last piece is, to invite your rich neighbors. Now, it's not to say that your rich neighbors aren't friends of yours and that they're not great people. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, I lived in Pauly's Island, for goodness sake. So it, it, that, but what, what he's saying here is, is, is that, that you want a reward for what you do? Well, if you invite those people, then you're going to get that reward from them. And then he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. So do for those people who can't do for you. Do for those people who actually need you to provide for them. He's not criticizing and saying, don't have friends, family, relatives, rich neighbors at your house. No, he's saying to the host, you know, one of the things that you need to do as a follower— is to recognize there are people who need your hospitality at a level greater than the people you would normally think to invite to your parties. And so reach out to them, remember those people, because the Lord your God remembered you. Because we're actually those people. We're the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. We just don't see it. That's exactly what he tells the church in Revelation. You think you have everything. Well, from my perspective, you don't. You need everything. And, and inviting these people is a reminder then to us of who we are. And it's a way of humbling yourself that you can be exalted in the same way it was with the guests. And at the end, in case you've missed it and think he's just given social etiquette 
kind of things. He's not Emily Post and he's not Miss Manners. No, he gets at the end and he says, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Oh, we're not just talking about social things, are we? We're talking about something greater than that. No, no, no. He says, if you want to be repaid, if you want your reward, we'll do these things and you'll have a much greater reward than being invited to their parties. So don't choose the path of upward social mobility to the extent that you lose your eternal reward. No, never only be on that path is what he's saying. Never only do these things. And, and, and Jesus did that very thing. And, and his divine condescension to be among these people that day it is unbelievable. When you think of it in the terms that he just gave to the guests and the hosts about who to invite to a party, I mean, when you know who he is, you see that he is ultimately slumming by being at this party that these people believe is really amazing. But Jesus is slumming to be with them, to be with us. And then the ultimate in slumming is dying on the cross so that we can be with him. In the Hebrews passage today, it's Hebrews 13, 1 to 8, 15 to 16, and these are advice for how to live then. He says, let brotherly love continue. So keep doing what you're doing there. You're doing the right thing. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And that would apply to two people that, I'm, that I can think of right off the bat. And, and that would be, it applied to Abraham, because when the three men came, to check out what was actually going on in Sodom before God brought judgment down on it. Then, then he entertained angels unawares because he thought they were just men. And then Lot also entertained angels unawares. And so th- this hospitality to strangers, you never know who's coming. You never know who a stranger is. And, and that's one of the things that I've, I've learned over the course of my life. And it's taken a long time because I, I've tended to judge by externals too often. And, and now, um, I'm not just kind of greet people and accept people where they are and who they are. You know, you can prove to me that you're somebody I don't want anything to do with, but, but it, it, I try my best not to judge people by what I see, but just receive people. <clears throat> he said, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. In other words, don't just remember them. Rem- remember them with empathy. Put yourself in those shoes. When we had Will, uh, we had, when he was dealing with his anorexia and stuff, we had to send him to rehab. And so we got out to Denver and went in that first day. He was with us and, and everything was good. And then we came back that night and everything was not good at all because they'd taken away his freedom. They had taken away his freedom to do the things that he felt like he needed to do, which is walk and walk and walk and walk and drink a lot of water and a lot of water and a lot of water so that you, you were full and you didn't want to eat. You know, there was other things that were involved in, and, and the mood changed dramatically over about a nine-hour period, and it was really unpleasant. But what, I, but, but what happened was, because he was my son, I felt the pain that he was going through, and it really was a struggle. To, for him to, for, to put him there. You know, you kind of get better with it over time as he gets better with it. But even though I knew that it was the right thing to do and that I shouldn't take him out of there, I wanted him to avoid the pain. And I, I know how much pain he was in and how much more he was likely to go through. And I, I just felt that pain myself. 
because he was my son. I need to be better about that with not just my son, but with other people as well. And that's exactly what the writer's saying here. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them and those who were mistreated since you're also in the body. You can and you have the ability to empathize because you have that that bodily incarnation kind of thing going on at the same time. You You know what that would feel like. Well, he says, sit in that feeling with them and react and act based on that. He said, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, don't cheat on your wife. Wives, don't cheat on your husbands. He says, he's speaking to two different groups here. Let the marriage bed, let marriage be held in honor among all. In other words, everybody outside your marriage needs to hold it in honor. And then you need to keep the marriage bed undefiled. So you need to honor other people's marriages, and they need to honor yours, but you also need to honor yours by keeping the marriage bed undefiled. And at weddings, in our tradition, there's always there's a place in there where you, where you ask the congregation. It's early on now. You ask the congregation right after the couple make vows. You ask the congregation to make a vow. And that is, will all you here who are present do all in your power to support this couple in their marriage? And everybody, of course, says, yes, I do. And then later, I always point to that whenever I preach at a a wedding. I point to that and say, you took a vow before God. You just promised before God that you would do everything you can to support these people in their marriage, which means that you've got two obligations. One is to point out when they're doing things right and say, I saw that. Good job. And the other is, if you see them doing anything destructive of the marriage, you got to speak into that. you got to say, hey, you're heading down the wrong road. You need to back off on that relationship, whatever it is that you see them doing. But the other side of it is, is that, that you are no longer just Bob's friend or Sally's friend. No, 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 no. You're now their friend. And you have an obligation to the marriage, not just your friend. You can't do anything that destruct, that's destructive of the marriage either. You can't claim their time in the same way you could before they entered into that covenant relationship. And so, so we need to hold marriage in honor, which is to say to recognize that marriage comes before my friendship with you. And I also need to be able to say you're, that person is off limits because they're in a marriage covenant relationship. And if I'm in that relationship, then I need to be able to say that everybody else is off limits. He said, for God's going to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So you're committing adultery if you're in the marriage and having a sexual relationship with somebody else. And you're sexually immoral if you're outside the marriage having an affair with somebody in the marriage. He said, keep your life free from the love of money. Doggone it. I mean, it's <laughs> some of these things are a little easier, right? I mean, I, I'm probably not going to commit adultery. You know, I can pretty well say, yeah, I think I can avoid that. I think I can say, okay, I can empathize with other people. I can show hospitality to strangers, keep my life free from the love of money. I mean, that's coveting. That's exactly what that is. It's loving the wrong thing too much. And and money, he knows good and well, is one of the greatest temptations we're all going to have. Prosperity is something everybody wants. If, if they didn't want it, those churches that preach it wouldn't grow. We know exactly what people want. Everybody wants it, you know. <laughs> That's the old song, right? I want money, <laughs> and, and so we have to be keep our lives free from the love of money, and that should change the way we live and the way we allocate our time, and be content with what you have. For He has said, "I will never leave you or forsake you." And the question is, is that enough for you? 
and, and, and that in Jeremiah, what Jeremiah is saying is, is that, that you don't even ask that question anymore. You don't even ask the question, Does God, has God said, I will ne- never leave you or forsake you, and is he enough? No, you, you stopped asking that question long ago, and you started answering another question long ago in a different way, and that question was, what's most important to me? And you decided prosperity, and when you decided prosperity, you decided God was the barrier to that prosperity, not the ticket, but the barrier. And so you said, well, I'll get another God. That, that, that's his value. That way I can, I can get God's values to align with my values instead of the other way around. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is he enough for you? Are you willing to trust him? That, that what you have is what God has determined you need to maintain your life and to maintain your faith. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Because the more I chase after money, the more I can put myself in precarious positions where a man can take it away from me. I had a friend that, that had a business, and he, he produced a product that was unique, and it was patented. And, and he sold it primarily to two companies, Lowe's and Home Depot. And three or four years into this, he began to get a lot of publicity. There was national publicity for his business and for what he was doing because it was unique. He was doing something nobody had ever done before. And he had improved something that had been around forever. And so we were talking one day, and I said, what's your biggest concern? He said, you know what my biggest concern is? He said, that's an easy one. He said, said, Lowe's and Home Depot will ultimately squeeze me and say, you can't do business with the other one. And I'll have to choose. And when I choose... It's actually going to hurt my business. He it won't cut it in if, if it was 50-50 distribution between Lowe's and Home Depot. He says, it's not going to cut me by that much because I, I believe it's a good enough product that people will go to whichever one I ultimately sell to, and, and they will that'll make up for some of the loss, but I'm going to lose money because that's just the way they ultimately work. And so that that's, can be what can man do to me is if I'm chasing that, chasing that, chasing that, then ultimately somebody's going to hurt you. You know, it, it, when I say hurt, that, that can be um, relative, right? So if you lose a quarter of your sales, you're hurt, you're harmed in some way, and, and, and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. And so um, I, I forgot who it was. I think it was maybe Malcolm Forbes that made the comment at once. Well, I won't say it. It's a little off color, so I'm going to leave it alone. So what? We, but but what the advice here, the the, the 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 work here is to say, be in such a shape, in such a place that you can't be harmed by something man does to you. Now that that's you can't completely avoid that. But the more we're content with what we have, the the better we're going to be. Ultimately, because then we know that God is our provider, and and that we live below our means in in so many ways is what that's saying. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, to the, the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So the, the writer of Hebrews is commending those people who have forsaken everything to share the Word of God with them and said, remember them and their way of life and imitate that because they've given up everything to follow Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You can trust him. You can trust him. And so what Jesus is telling us is the path to upward mobility is to humble yourself that God may exalt you in the same way that he himself did.
He's not asking us to do anything he didn't do, and he gave up a lot more than we'll ever give up. But we have to be careful. We do have to be careful in all things because we can, we can let the love of money control us. We can let all these other things control us, all of the other desires that we might have. And then when we do, then we're willing to exchange our gods and, and get gods that are more aligned with the way we, we, we think rather than the other way around where we align ourselves with God and with his word.